In this episode, we're going to talk about collective guilt, which is a real challenge for us in the West, and it's just a challenge for us modern people who tend to think very individualistically. So bear with us, be patient. We pray this will be helpful to you. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And today we're going to bite off probably more than we can chew, but there's a a question that many of you have had and some of you have written in about, and that's really been highlighted in the Israel-Palestinian conflict um, more recently, and that is how to think about collective identity and collective guilt. And there's, yeah, there's just no good way to jump into this, so let's just find a spot and, and start swimming there. I think to set this up as the fundamental challenge that I see is that often, like in the last two years, and when we're talking about an, an idea of groups or people or people groups or groups that have a collective identity, and then how an injustice against an individual within that uh, is responded to by the group, or if a it's it's a it's a challenging thing. But mostly that has come up in conversations about race. So somebody would say, "Look, you know, here's." Mm-hmm. Um, an individual within a system um, or within a group of people, and and can you hold a group of people accountable for what an individual does within that group? Uh, you see this also in corporate situations or issues where maybe an employee of a company does something really ridiculous, and then the CEO resigns, and people are like, "Wait, how did that work?" You know, like the employee is the one who did the dumb thing, mm-hmm. and then their overseer is the one who's fired. So, how you attribute cause and effect to individuals within a group? is really challenging. So you have the, the corporate crime issues, you have um, racial, uh, all sorts of things with policing and otherwise there. And now you also add in the challenge of the uh, plight of the Israelis and the Palestinians, particularly when you look at um, what we would consider in the West innocent bystanders in these conflicts. Now, what's what mm-hmm. makes it a little hard for us to wrap our minds around, so I was listening to one of the interviews with the Hamas leader, one of the Hamas leaders, who said, no, we didn't kill any civilians. And the interviewer was like, uh, there are people at a music festival, and he's like, yeah, but they were occupiers because they were part of the system. So they weren't just civilians, they were occupiers, right? So he could see somebody dancing at a music festival as a militant occupier mm-hmm. of the other group, and in the same way, there will be people in the uh, maybe on the more Israeli side to say, "Look, you voted for Hamas. This is the system that you made. That you made the bed. Now you have to sleep in it. This is part of the. If you die as a result of what comes from Israel, um, then you're partially responsible for the atrocities that Hamas, and maybe it's even a faction within Hamas, mm-hmm. committed on Israeli soil. So." Um, therein lies the whole conundrum of how do you hold people responsible for somebody else's behavior? I think that's the challenge that we need to at least acknowledge that's on the table and spend a little bit of time wrestling with here today as we try to think about how to think Christianly about that concept of who can be held responsible for what. Did I get all of that, or are there some other places where you see this play out, Cameron? No, I think that's really helpful set up, Nathan. Let me introduce into the discussion some theological points for our consideration that I think will give us a, a more broad grasp on this as we wrestle with this. And this is 
definitely one of those areas where we need to do some wrestling because this is this is tough territory. So first of all, let's look at the notion very quickly of original sin. We can come back to this, but in oh, a yeah, sense, right, yeah. and there are there right of course. So there's a spectrum here, but if you accept original sin to a certain degree we all carry around guilt incurred by Adam's guilt there's a root of evil in each person and it is innate so right there off the bat we have we have a notion that is i think conflicts deeply with a lot of our sensibilities nowadays, especially when we think about guilt. So let's let's put, I just want to put that one out there. We'll come back to that, of course. We can bring that back in. But original sin. So there's original sin. Two. Now I'll start on a positive note with this one, and then we'll work our way into some specific instances. But Nathan, we often talk about how human beings are inextricably relational creatures. So that's true. We are relational creatures. We exist in some form of community, whether it's a good community or a bad community. We all have to live in some kind of a community. We all have to relate to others. Again, there are, there are unhealthy manifestations of that, and there are healthy manifestations of that. But we are relational creatures. If that's true, and I believe that's a pretty non-controversial point, we're not atomistic, <laughs> kind of isolated individuals. We are indeed relational creatures. If that's true then there will necessarily be communal aspects to corruption, to sin. That's, that's, a, that's a logical outworking of the fact that we're relational creatures. So you'll have evil perpetrated on an individual level, yes, and there'll be individual responsibility involved, but then there will also be systemic versions of evil that have taken root in institutions, that, are, that can be codified in laws, that can be enacted in different kinds of real estate transactions, that can infiltrate police departments. I mean, you name it. It's interesting, Nathan. I was re- Now, here's a, here's a quick specific example. There's a podcast that, that's out there right now. It's a very popular podcast on the famous corruption scandal that involved the NYPD in the 1990s. And it's interesting, they're, they're interviewing one of the key people who was one of the, he was basically the major prosecutor when it came to this corruption scandal in the NYPD. And the N- NYPD have had, they've had a few corruption scandals, actually. The most famous one is probably the one that is, you know, we remember it because of the movie Serpico. But Serp- Frank Serpico was a real policeman in the 1970s who was a whistleblower and ended up losing his life for that. But then this one, this this corruption scandal took place in the 90s. It was on an absolutely massive scale. But one of the very revealing quotes from the attorney was, he said, you know, when corruption takes root, it spreads like a virus. It's like a contagion. It just spreads throughout, and it's very, very hard to contain it. So in a remark like that, you have kind of, you have a very sobering insight into you know, a basic liability of human nature and something that plays out on the human stage and in different sectors. I mean, this is this is what we all have to deal with on a day-to-day basis in our communities, okay. in our households, in our homes, 
and in our institutions. So I think I've given us enough to wrestle with yeah, here for a second. Let me, let me, let, we can apply some of these, but these are broad principles. Let me go for the jugular <laughs> real quick. Is there a difference between being connected to it, and yeah. responsible for? So we worked within an organization that had a massive collapse sure. based to some significant more Correct. moral failures. Um, we were definitely connected to that. Did you feel personally responsible we were. for it? I felt Go a level on. of responsibility. Yes. Was it embarrassment? I felt a level or responsibility? of responsibility. No, I think there, no, I felt a level of responsibility. I think it's possible in these in such cases. Now I'm, I have to speak specifically because this is this is a specific example, so I can't but if if you're if you're in circumstances like that, you're a part let's say you're a part of a, of an organization where a massive scandal eventually unfolds and high levels of corruption were taking place. There are likely scenarios where you might have seen you might have seen behavior, you might have seen something that seemed a little strange. There may have been policies that that you thought weren't weren't the best and were difficult and but you just thought, well, you know, I'll keep quiet on this one. Nothing overtly terrible, but I, I think part of why this is going to be unsettling for a lot of people is this is a pretty universal feeling in any place you go. You're gonna you're dealing with human fallenness and human sin, and you're seeing you're gonna see practices that aren't that are often below your own moral standards. I have a, a dear friend who's been dealing with this actually in a very in the for-profit world in a very different sector where the ethical course of action would be to have reported, you know, something that had happened and many people didn't want to do that. So this affects a lot of people, but the reason I say I think I bear some responsibility and I've and I've gone to the Lord in repentance of this is because I was a part of this particular organization, and there were times where perhaps I could have been more vocal. Did I have any clue what was actually going up on? No, I didn't. But there were certain there were certain instances, certain policies that I thought were questionable, and in hindsight, I I wish I had been more vocal about that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that wouldn't have probably been the answer I would have given off the top of my head. But all right, let's make it even more complicated then. So. Then what about um, things that happened? So, so let's say you, that you have an affiliation with an or, and this does come back around to the Israel-Palestine thing. So this is just mm -hmm. me laying the groundwork here. Mm -hmm. But let's say mm -hmm. that you're connected to a group of people that bad things happened before you were born. Do you still think there's a, a responsibility or a guilt attached to... Can somebody within your... Does, does that question make sense? So let's say that without naming the organization we were part of, that everything that happened happened before we were born, which some of it probably did. Um, I don't think there's a way in which sure. you can say we're causatively responsible for the action that somebody made before we were born in a guilt sense, perhaps in a responsibility sense. Or is that splitting hairs mm -hmm. to try to separate that out? I think it's bringing us once again to one of the central tensions when we think about original sin, because there you're talking about something that transpired well before we were born. And you're talking about people born into this world with a degree, well, in 
in guilt, in corruption. This is one of the most hated, I think, Christian doctrines outside the church. And I can understand why. So I think you're, you're bringing us to that tension. Stanley Hauerwas used to say, should we be held responsible for things that we don't understand? And he was, reply, he was applying that to marriage <laughs> right. because you never know who you're yeah. going to marry and you, know, you, and you never get the children you want and you always marry the wrong person. But in a sense, this is why on the one, on the one side of this, the fallen, when, when I look at fallen human nature... I'll sound bleak for just a second, but then there's a there's another hopeful side because this isn't the whole story. It looks a little bit like Greek tragedy to me, in a sense, because you have human beings with this awesome freedom and awesome moral responsibility, terrible moral responsibility, born into a world and a situation where Either they're they're born corrupt or they're you know their corruption is inevitable. They have they, maybe they're not even if you you know grant maybe oh they didn't, weren't born a sinner but they inevitably will sin. It's impossible that they will not. And then not only that they they will be held morally responsible for those actions. And also our moral behavior carries consequences that far exceed our own understanding. I mean we even have terms for this legal terms crime of passion. You know, you in in the heat of a moment, you let fly a bullet and end a human life. Let's say, and, and classic example, well, classic modern example. Can you even begin to wrap your head around the damage that you've just caused, the life that's been sucked off the planet, and all, and the wave of sorrow and pain that that will unleash? Well, you can't possibly understand that, and yet you're responsible for it, and you did it. So that disproportion between our own insane, well, not ins- I don't want to use the word insane, but in- amazing powers, and then our own ability to understand them and understand what we're doing looks to- has sort of tragic dimensions to it. I'm not helping you right now. I'm not solving nope, anything. Nope. We're I'm making, adding I, more we're, we're going deeper difficulty here. Okay, to this. So, so another, another notch down the rabbit hole here is say something about our inability as perhaps highly individualized Westerners to wrap our heads around some of this because to the degree. So I I think a lot of, a lot of people would say, look, okay, anybody who kills somebody at a music festival and rapes them or mutilates their Mm -hmm. body and says that they were an, of course, an oppressive organizer has a different way of seeing the world than we do. And at the same time, those of us who are looking at that would say, you know what? There are a bunch of 12 year olds in, in Gaza right now who didn't vote for Hamas. Um, and so we, right. we, we're very quick to separate out the individuals from the systems in which they're embedded in order to think about how justice ought to or should function. And is that possible that we're just, that our, that our rampant individualism is a, gives us blinders to the way that a lot of the rest of the world looks at this? It does, and it, because our rampant individualism is a historical novelty, in the past, people have not looked at human beings as isolated individuals. Now, let me be the first to say that I think individualism has has some wonderful aspects to it, and that I'm a champion of individualism, and that I want to say loudly, those I want those civilians to be rescued, 
I think it's absolutely heinous and vile that these people at this rave were massacred, that children are being murdered and raped. But then again, I would, of course, back up and say that the fallen condition of humanity itself is an absolute atrocity. The fact that we have murder itself is an atrocity. But also, I want to speak up and say that the vile, I mean, just the the absolutely intense anti-Semitism on display right now is deeply, deeply disturbing as well. Mm-hmm. So I want I want to I want to be very vocal about that and and stop. I don't you know I don't want listeners to get the impression that, for instance, that we're retreating behind theological abstractions. I want to say, I mean, it is an absolute tragedy that civilians are dying on both sides, both in Palestine and, and, and in Israel. But this attack is was absolutely horrendous. Well, and and can, also, I mean, just seeing the, yeah. Well, I was going to say, you, you get the line, the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. Okay. He doesn't delight in the death, but that doesn't mean right. that he doesn't label them wicked. So those aren't mutually exclusive to say this Correct. is bad and there are wicked people involved here. So it's it's not a, a hard either right. or there. Even the Lord laments the death of the wicked. So so I guess if you're listening to this and you're and you're feeling some tension in how you are working through that, we have some good theological frameworks to help us there in that category. Well, because Nathan and I are not speaking in explicitly political terms right now. And when we're – I mean, now – there is a place for politics, of course, but in on the broader scale, we both and Christians worldwide would lament the fallen state of this world. This is why, so the fact that there is death and warfare at all, full stop, that we have people killing and raping each other, full stop, which by the way is happening every single day all around the world. So when we look at that, but in instances like this, where you, you get a very intimate on the ground picture of it, where you can read the WhatsApp exchanges between family members who are being slaughtered. I mean, this just brings it home to you in a whole new visceral way. But when I get on my knees, Nathan, on days like this, I think you can, with a little bit more conviction, say, Maranatha, Lord, oh, come, Lord. Mm-hmm. And you recognize that this world has splendors. It does. It's 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 God's good world. It's his beautiful creation. But this world is indeed fallen and it's passing away and this is not our permanent home. And when we take a hard look at the scale of injustice and violence in our world, I think that's driven home to us in a new way. So, I think part of what we're trying to get at here Nathan is also just to get take a realistic view of the world as it actually is right now. But back to the collective guilt piece, I think there are we have a we have a few examples that we can draw on that might bring this home to us in a new way. And I might ask you to say something about what you said. There's something you said to me earlier, Nathan, that I thought was helpful. But think about remember when there was the the scandal in the military with the torture happening in Abu Ghraib? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You remember that, Nathan? Yeah, yeah. So there is a sense when that happens or when there's a, a an instance of police brutality that makes the news. So we have we have a per, we have people who are implicated who are responsible on an individual level but we also have an institution that's in, implicated in these instances. So in a sense these people, these soldiers, these policemen 
we're not they're they're acting as individuals, but they are also ambassadors for their respective institutions. Mm-hmm. And when something like that happens, they they basically they soil the whole institution with their actions. And so you're talking about reputation. I think here. that can give us a little. I'm talking about reputation. I'm also talking, but it goes beyond that. It goes. It, this goes to trust as well. When trust is violated, mm-hmm. like that, you you have you have people who basically this this can be this can act as a catalyst for other instances of violence of resistance. Whether we're talking about people trying to police responsibly in an area, or whether we're talking about soldiers, so I think. We have, and we, we can understand a little bit of, of the collective guilt, because then the question arises also, so let's go back to that police scandal in New York's, with the, the NYPD, you know, these, you have a lot of, a lot of policemen who are now, not only are they taking drug money from drug dealers, now they're selling drugs, and it just keeps going further and further and further, and the lawyers who prosecute the case ask some of the the very telling questions. All right, well, what what made this kind of practice possible and what made this kind of super corrupt cop possible? You know, this this person didn't arise in a vacuum. There had to be a whole mm-hmm. bunch... There's a, there's a corrupt infrastructure behind them making this possible. A lot of people have to, have to collude. There's got to be a lot of complicity. So those kinds of questions clue us in. Once again, if human beings are relational creatures then there are going to be communal manifestations of human corruption and human sin. Yeah. So let me throw some theological things in here. And but before I do that, just I see I'm I'm in between here because I think there are things that I am not I think there are broken things that I am not guilty of of breaking, but that as a Christian I have a responsibility to fix. So I I, I think there's a sense mm-hmm. in which I can see like Here's a messed up system. I didn't break it. I don't, I'm not guilty of the action of the individuals within it, but now that I know that it's broken, I have the responsibility to see that the proper level of oughtness comes out of it. So not to, I'm, I don't think I'm negating what you're saying, but I think that might be, if that's an impediment for people listening to say, just because you're not guilty of something doesn't mean you're not responsible. And perhaps just because you're not aware of it, you're not responsible. Um, doesn't mean that you're not implicated. But let me get back to the theological thing you're saying. So yes, all right. Whatever original sin means and meant then, what's for sure now is that all of us were born outside of the garden. And the implication of the things that were done um, in the past massively influence our lives today. The decisions that your great-great-grandmother made are, you can't even calculate how important they are in the life that you have right now. I mean, it's, it's mm. why, like, when you just go back to the levels of complexity mm. of that, and some of those we see, you know, very, um, okay, so say my mom does a lot of drugs and I'm born mentally impaired. Um, I'm, I'm going to live a life with the consequences of an action that somebody else took, even though I might not even, I'm not morally mm. responsible for that situation. I mean, this is where the world starts to get a little creepy and scary and you start to recognize that we need mm-hmm. a just judge and a savior to sort it out because the way in which this gets entwined is crazy. But it's not just on the punishment side of things. When you look through like the Old Testament 
in its theology is deeply rooted on like, I'm going to bless you and make your family a blessing to the nations. And here's a promise that I'm making you for all of your descendants going forward. And I'm going to punish evil to this many generations. And I'm going to bless um, the righteous to this many generations or this group messed up, but God says yet for the sake of my servant, David, I'm not going to wipe them out or um, you, it's, it's, it is hard to read and make sense of the old Testament through American eyes when it comes to that level mm-hmm. of multi-generational or this guy sends, Achan sends, and the entire family is wiped out, right? I mean, they. Yep. The, here, oh, you want a crazy one? Um, David counts as fighting men and how many people, thousand people died, right? So you see mm-hmm. time and time again yep. where the entire nation is blessed yep. and or condemned and judged based off of the action of an individual in the Old Testament. Uh so let's recognize that this isn't like some kind of new idea. In fact, it might be the standard human operating conception of ourselves within tribes and within groups. That might be the norm. I think it is. However, you yep. do then get to, by the time you get to Ezekiel and some of the other prophets, um, where you know God's saying, it used to be said that the fathers eat the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, which is... A, I love that, like the very poetic expression of saying what the parents do mm-hmm. is going to be felt in the lives of the children. The fathers eat the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But then he goes on from there to say, but no longer so, the soul who sins is the soul who will die. And so there does seem to be a theological shift. Help me work this out, because there seems to be a theological shift in which then the um, you're not saved as a nation, you're not saved as a group, you're saved as an individual in your relationship with God. And that expresses itself in a Christian theology where we would talk about um, Mm -hmm. our salvation being personal uh, in our relationship with God. Uh, And and then this is different within, you know, different religious uh, denominations. So Cameron, good Presbyterian, child of the covenant, Mm -hmm. you know, part of the family does matter in that. Um, The, but then to get to the point that even by like Romans three, when we're talking about all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by Mm -hmm. his grace, that there is a sense in which, and then even in Romans 8, the stuff about creation groaning, there's a sense in which God does still form peoples and bless groups and and seemingly put people into mm-hmm. categories and baskets, if you will, in order to bless and to save. Um, so yeah, I've, I've overquoted it, but there's a sense in which, you know, it, my grandpa yeah. always said that a real biblical theology here would say that our salvation is personal, but it's not individual. And that's a hard one to parse out, but that yeah. seems to be true. I think that's a great way to put it. Fit, but it doesn't fit yeah. with our modern our modern political concept of what it means to be an individual in our society. Well, it has to be. It's got to be both, and not in the not in the sense of a contradiction. But again, we are each of us individual human beings, but we are also relational creatures. And Scripture bears that out. I was going to bring Ezekiel up as well okay. because. These, what's so interesting about Ezekiel is that its placement. Of course, this is in the this is the Old Testament. Yeah, and you're hearing about this as well. But it, then again, the Old Testament is full of surprises when you actually read it. So, I think we were talking about this the other day, Nathan. God's grace and God's mercy gets a whole lot more airtime in the Old Testament <laughs> right, yeah. than it does in the New Testament. Even though mm. public perception is the opposite, and Jesus Himself has a lot to say on the subject of condemnation and, and hell. Yeah. And so judgment, I mean, it's, it's a, so that's really interesting. Part of what I was going to say earlier. So in the, in, we have 
we have the the poetic passage from Ezekiel that you mentioned, Nathan. We also have passages on the sins of the fathers being visited on multiple generations. But again, if you struggle with that, Nathan just gave you a very practical example of that. We're all dealing with decisions that our great-great-grandparents made. But that's part of what I'm getting at when I talk about what on the one hand, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the other side of this now, but looks like the tragic human condition. So what grandma could even imagine how her decisions would bless you or, or curse you generations down the line? You know, she would have no way of wrapping. I mean, our decisions carry such weight. We can't even imagine, but here's the thing. It's not human decisions in the end that change reality and, and move the world in the ultimate sense. That this this world is in God's hands and it always belongs to, it's it's always been God's good world and it belongs to him and the Lord intervenes but in his own time and in his own way and we have and so the, the so our universe the world is an open system it's not a closed system and if it were, if human decisions really did rule the roost and made all that difference, then I think in a sense we would look a little bit like an Oedipus or something like that. You know, a tragic figure whose actions, whether we, we intend them for good or ill, always vastly exceed our own understanding. And we can't even imagine what we're, what we're doing as we do what we do. Mm. And also, we're bound to sin. We can't escape the fact that we're going to sin. Even if we try really hard, we're still going to sin, and we're going to be held. So it's inevitable. We can't not sin, and we're morally responsible for it. Mm, but, but again, yeah, but we Test- live in a world where that is— well, yeah. I was going to say, you get that in the First John passage. I write these things to you that you do not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> we have an advocate. So but you're not supposed to, we're getting at, but, Nathan, but is, you will. I, it, but you're responsible you're right. if you do, but if you confess it, we have yep. an advocate. So— Chew on that ball. And anyone who says he is not a sinner, yeah, and he's anybody who says he is not a he, he does he is he has a liar. So there you got that. Again, scripture makes sense of reality. This is this this is a book designed for all the complexity and strangeness of the human situation. But I think part of what we're pointing up, Nathan, and this is something that just it's hard. We have to there are two ways to scratch your nose. You can directly scratch your nose or you can reach your arm all the way around and try to twist around and scratch your nose. We, in the modern world, when it comes to figuring out that we actually need a savior and have to be saved, we can't just scratch our noses anymore. We've got to reach all the way around and get to it by the most torturous route because we think we've, we've got it all figure out, figured out. We're in control. We're masters of our own destiny. But when you just begin to look at the human situation and the human condition and be honest about it, you begin to recognize if this world were in our hands we would be in deep, deep trouble. We would be utterly lost. We cannot save ourselves. And if we take a hard look at the human condition and guilt, whether it's collective or individual, and we have to deal with both, we if we're honest and good, serious introspection is taking place, we're going to come to the recognition that something, someone has to save us because we are not up to that task. You know, Cameron, that's interesting when you're saying that. It made me come back around to what you're talking about as far as our concept of ourselves as individuals and how it all works out. And you're saying, you know, we have some serious issues with individualism, but individualism is also a really great thing, and we're fans of it. Let's let's pull this yes. apart just for a second to, to note this. 
is that the Old Testament and the Bible in, in general is not individualistic in the way that it thinks about the identity of humans, but it is individualistic in the value that it ascribes to each individual person. So let me say that again. It's not individualistic in the way that it conceptualizes the identity of a person, but it's highly individualistic in the value that it places on each specific person. And so what we've mm -hmm. conflated, I think, in the West is to say that the fact that the human person individually has value, that therefore they can also find their identity in their individualism. And that just isn't working out. You don't have to be religious to see that from a sociological, psychological perspective, that grounding your identity in your individuality leads necessarily to the loss of community and isolation. So, so th this is why we can't take this apart is to say that we really need the full biblical anthropology to get this right. Each individual is valuable. The people who were raped and killed in Israel, the people who are about to be killed and however this conflict unfolds. And hey, we recognize we're speaking mm -hmm. about this at a time in which a whole lot more is going to happen and we can't predict the future. Yeah. But carnage is, is coming. Um, and individual people who God loves will die. Um, and that's the way that the and world people is who right God now. loves will do the kill. Will, yeah, we'll, and people right. who God loves yeah. will do the the blood, the shedding of the blood. Yeah, it's, but, but, but you see, is am, am I making that clear on the difference between individualism and its value mm -hmm. as the value for the person rather than the foundation of an identity? Yes, because if you don't have that, yes. then all of a sudden you can start using humans as shields. And you can put your weaponry underneath mm -hmm. refugee camps and hospitals because, and you can tell right. people not to evacuate because you need their dead bodies to propagate your mission and your mm -hmm. vision of the way that the world is. That's not a respect for the individual or um, because you don't think that the individual is fundamentally worthy of that. No, I think therein lies an absolutely crucial balance. Does this solve our political squabbles? No, of course not. But what we, what Nathan and I, I think, are trying to do is get a handle on the right anthropology, which I think is absolutely important here, so that we can see clearly what's happening, maybe get a better grasp of something as seemingly foreign to us as collective guilt, and then also understand the need for ultimate justice to be in the Lord's hands. Unless we, and, and then that's a whole separate podcast mm -hmm. at some point, if you talk about entrusting, and it is, that's an article of faith, by the way, entrusting ultimate justice, not abdicating your responsibility. I'm not saying that, but entrusting ultimate justice into God's hands. That is an, that's a very important article of faith. And I'll, I can close with a recommendation of a book that I think would be really helpful for this time. It's not an easy book, but it's a worthwhile book. But Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volf. V-O-L-F. Yeah, Miroslav Volf. This was a book written. Now, Miroslav Volf is, is himself a Croat. And so he... In the in the 1990s, experienced some of the. I mean, we get our term, we get the term ethnic cleansing from the the war that erupted between Serbs and Croat Croats in former Yugoslavia. So he saw some 
some absolutely just blood chilling things. And the degree of hatred between between those two people groups is is as intense as any you'll encounter. And so that was the crucible in which that book was forged. And I think that's it's a very helpful book on the divine justice and the need to entrust that into the Lord's hands. You know, when Nathan and I don't agree with everything Miroslav Wolf says, and that's okay. But I think that's that's a book that's very very worth your time. The day in which we find an author whom we both agree with on everything, we will let you know. Um, of Cameron, course, right? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> just one more thing. I think, so. So, who are we speaking to here? We're we're speaking to you who are Christians or thinking or trying to think Christianly about looking at the world, particularly mm-hmm. in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right now, and saying, you know, there's nothing we can do about that. But I think a number of us are concerned with the feelings that we have as we're thinking about it, and we're trying to say, how are my emotions and my thoughts reflecting something deeper about the way that I see the world and I see God and, and goodness and justice? And so that's what we're trying to wrestle with here, not to make the conflict about us, but to certainly say that something about the the degree of interest or anxiety that we have about it does say something about mm-hmm. who we think God is and what he is like. One other thing, just as you're parsing that out, and there I haven't hammered this out with Cameron to see if there's a disagreement here or not, but one of the things that might make a distinction on this is whether or not you link guilt directly to causality. So I'm guilty because I caused something to happen, or you link guilt to heredity, as in I'm guilty because I was born outside of Eden or I was born into this clan. Um, so, and, and those aren't mutually exclusive, but they're the degrees of that. So one of those would be to ask yourself how you think of guilt and responsibility based off of the causality that you as an individual perpetrated and that which you pick up by association with the groups of people that you're uh, connected to. Um, a lot of you, as you're listening to this, will think of groups that you fill an identity with, and many of you speaking, thinking of this won't actually feel like you're a part of a group in any meaningful way. And all of those variables will have some bearing on how you process uh, what you watch happening in the world. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.